Matthew chapter 5. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of our kind leaders will pass one out to you. Okay. Settle down. It has been two weeks since I saw you. It's a long time. While you guys are suffering in the snow, I was in Florida. Yep. Bummer. Florida. It was very nice. It was like 70 degrees. It's good. Hanging out with Nate Gallagher, the man. It was good. Missed you guys, though. Saw Alex Caramel Doughboy. Did. He's doing great. Completely forgot about us. Just kidding. Okay. So, if you're here for the first time, welcome. Glad that you've come to the youth group. We hope that you feel like you're a part of a family, not just a part of a group of teenagers. We have youth leaders here that want to invest in you, want to teach you some things, which I could use for sure. I could use older people talking to me and giving me wisdom. Read about wisdom this morning for my devotion in Proverbs chapter 9, because it's not the day of the you know, month. Uh, how all of us should be seeking wisdom, right? And wisdom comes from people that are older, that have some more experience, and uh, that's what we're here to do. Not like we're super smart, but we have some experience, and that's what we want to do is share that stuff with you. So tonight we're going in Matthew chapter 5. We are starting a brand new study through the Sermon on the Mount, possibly the most famous sermon that was ever taught. Okay, by Jesus himself. And what we're going to see is Jesus has a lot to say to people that are religious. People that have customs and traditions, but they have missed the point of why they do what they do. And so Jesus actually raises the bar beyond what even the religious leaders of the day could have done for themselves. And he shows us how the people of God should be acting, and what kind of people they should even be. So as we go through this study, they didn't just pick it just because I was like, we should go through the book of Manuel just because. Um, Pastor Lloyd is actually going through the book of Manuel on Matthew on Sundays. I said that twice, right? <laughs> book of Matthew twice. Uh, so you get a little bit here, a little bit there, which is great. But I was thinking, we if there's ever a time for us to be able to think about our citizenship in heaven and how that plays out here on earth, the time is now. You have the Me Too movement. You have people oppressing, people taking advantage of other people. You're having people go through all kinds of things, depression, anxiety, as we talked about on the weekend services last Sunday, two Sundays ago. People are struggling, and Jesus shows us that there's a way to experience the kingdom life now. There's a way to experience the benefits of heaven now. And he's going to talk about this blessed life. And so as we go through this passage, which is a super famous, super popular passage, I think, and I pray that we're going to be able to see it in a different light, maybe different than you've ever seen before. So a couple things. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 5, says this. And seeing the multitudes... He, being Jesus, went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, 
his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, and then he's going to say a bunch of stuff, okay? Important to note that this sermon, it seems like, is repeated in the book of Luke. And most likely what happened is that since Jesus was an itinerant preacher, he preached a whole bunch of different locations, this would have been like his go-to sermon. The thing that he would have made sure, oh, you haven't heard me talk before? This is the thing that I want you to get, okay? So most likely, even though if you read the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, in one sitting, it'd take about 15 minutes to do that if you just took your time. Most likely, these are summations of what Jesus said in person. Super common practice of the day, still inspired, but most likely, in order to make this memorable, the disciples took the broad teaching of Jesus and summarized it into what we have here in the book of Matthew chapter 5. So as we go through these things, in the form of Jesus, what we're doing is we're expanding upon these thoughts and asking, how does this apply to us today? And so what Jesus is going to do is show us the contrast. He's going to show us how the people of God should be living today in contrast to the ideals of the religious leaders and their laws, etc. So, uh, something important to note is that um, if you grow up in church, most, most of you have, it's easy to look at Christianity as a set of rules and regulations, things that you do, rather than a type of person you're to be, instead of a different dimension of life, okay? So, you guys know virtual reality? Virtual reality is 3D, right? It's not two dimensions. It's not just like flat. There's a whole other dimension that we can experience. And this is what Jesus wants to bring us into. Nothing has really changed about the appearance, except we've brought into a different dimension. It's about your heart. It's not about the outward appearance anymore. And so the thing is, you can on the outside look like you have it all together, but inside you're missing everything. And this is what Jesus is confronting the fact that some of you, to be honest, you've showed up today, you look like a great person. I mean, like, you haven't murdered anybody, you don't really do, like, the bad drugs or anything like that. Like, if we had a conversation, you'd probably be like, I'm a pretty good person. But Jesus penetrates to the deepest parts of your heart and says, listen, you can have it all together on the outside, but if the insides are not together, then you've missed everything. So this is what we're going to talk about. This is what Jesus confronts, is the insides, the matter of the heart to show us that it's not about the things that you do, right? Making sure that you are having all your ducks in a row. That's not what it's all about. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a, a, a preacher who had this point as an illustration. He said, um, if you think about somebody who, like, plays Mozart, if you just have all the notes out, you can have somebody who mechani mechanically plays out all the notes of Mozart, but if he's not playing it with feeling, you can't really say that he's playing Mozart. He's butchering it, right? You can be playing all the right notes and still miss the heart of what um, you're trying to communicate through the art form. So, that being said, let's continue on. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray one more time before we open up in this book. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us from heaven, that you remove every single distraction, that really important thing that we need to tell that person right now. We just pray, Lord, that we would have patience, and instead we'd be able to soak in your word, that we would receive direction, instruction, and that our hearts would be transformed from the inside out. So we pray that you redirect our heart, redirect the things that we love into the things that matter most to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you ask most people what they really want in life the most, out of everything else you could possibly have, so if you ask any random person on the street and you're able to ask a question without them being freaked out or creeped out or run away from you, if you could just ask, what is the one thing that you want in life the most? I think the majority of people would say what? Happiness. I want to be happy. In fact, our country promotes this, right? Everyone is entitled to the pursuit of happiness. But then if you actually dig a little bit deeper, ask them, what does that look like? What do they actually mean when they say, I want to be happy? Obviously, that doesn't mean just on occasion that you feel this euphoric state, right? Happiness, the root word, comes from happenings. And that's not what they mean. It's just from day to day, every other day, that you feel this overwhelming sense of peace, goodness. That's not really what they mean, right? What they mean is they want contentment. Deep down inside, everyone, the majority of the people in the world, I would assume, wants this thing called contentment. But you see, the Bible shows us that true contentment is only found in a reconciled relationship with our Creator. No matter where you go in this life, think about it. Like, what we're promised in our Constitution, according to what America promises, right, is the pursuit of happiness. You don't even get what you want. But all of us should feel entitled to that. But listen, this is exactly what everybody's doing, is pursuing happiness. Everybody is chasing after their dreams. Everybody is chasing after success, wealth, a relationship. People are trying to obtain the thing they think will make them happy. But as we see, and this is something we talk about all the time as a youth group, right? If money, if sex, if power can make people really happy, why are celebrities some of the most depressed people on the planet? In fact, what you see is people know deep down inside these things really can't make you happy. They can't make you feel content, fulfilled. They might make you feel good for a moment, for a day, but it's not the long-lasting contentment that everybody is really looking and dreaming and wishing for. So true contentment comes in a reconciled relationship with your creator. This is what the Bible talks about time and time again, and it shows us this right here in this passage. Let me show you another passage. It's in Psalm chapter 34, verse 8. The psalmist writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. This is David writing this after he's been forgiven of that sin when he slept with Bathsheba, somebody else's wife, and he recognized that God had forgiven him and that he was no longer without hope. He said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you who is saints. There is no want. 
to those who fear him. You have no wants. You're content. There's no other desire for anything else. You're fine. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So think about this. If I told you that something is beautiful, okay, let's say that I went to the MoMA in New York City, and I saw this painting that I was like, this painting is beautiful, absolutely stunning. It's one of the most beautiful paintings I've ever seen in my life. Let's just say that I said that, okay? How could I prove to you that it's beautiful? Could I give you a list of justified reasons? Uh, the reason why it's beautiful is because it's painted by this guy, and it was made 100 years ago, and has these colors in it. Could I give you a list of reasons, propositions, as to why something's beautiful that would convince you? No. The only way to really convince you that something's beautiful is for you to actually go and see it. Then you can be convinced, yes, that's beautiful. So many people, if we're honest, what we're trying to do is we're trying to convince them by proposition that God is good. But the psalmist writes, taste and see that the Lord is good. You have to experience it for yourself. I can tell you all the live long day that God is good. We can praise him, you know, in, in a time of worship. And sometimes you hear people say stuff like that. Like, we're in a time of worship. We're singing songs. And someone says, yes, Lord, amen. They're praising God. And you, you can't really resonate with that. Why? Because you can't, by experience, relate with what they're experiencing. You can't, you can't relate to the thing that they're saying because you don't know that the Lord is good. So all of us need to come to a point in time where we can say, you know what? Contentment truly does come with a reconciled relationship with my creator because I have actually come before him. I have asked him to reconcile me to him. So here we see a number of different states in which people are blessed. That's what we see in verses 3 through 10. We're going to go through them in an equal amount of time, but there are a lot of points, so I want to make sure that we hit all of them equally. And so he starts by saying, blessed. Now, according to the ESV study Bible, these things are called beatitudes. Maybe you've heard of that before. It comes from the Latin beatus, which means blessed or happy. So this is more than a temporary circumstantial feeling of happiness. This is a state of well-being and relationship to God that belongs to those who respond to Jesus' ministry. So that word blessed there, maybe you've heard, heard it before, can be translated, oh, how happy are the poor in spirit. Oh, how happy are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and, and, and on and on it goes. Now, another way it could be translated is how fortunate are, or actually, I heard one person say, it's almost like congratulations. Like, you've made it. If you are poor in spirit, congratulations. You're fortunate. Oh, how happy are those people. Okay, so this is kind of the rendering that it that gives us, that when these people have this kind of character before the Lord, they are actually fortunate and happy and content. Now, when we read the Beatitudes, these verses that we just read, it's easy to glance over them as words of encouragement for the little man, right? The little guy, the guy who's on the outskirts, the guy who's rejected, and we look at that like, oh, man, these are really encouraging verses for the poor in spirit guy or the guy who's sad or the guy who's meek, the guy who's hungry. Man, these are great verses I'm going to encourage those people with. 
But listen, this is actually the ideal for all of Jesus' followers. We're not to look at these and identify somebody in our life that is like this. We're to look at these and say, no, this is the ideal that I should be aiming for. All of us should be aiming to identify with the poor in spirit, the person who mourns, the person who's meek, the person who's pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted, okay? We're to look at that and say, can I identify with these people because maybe I'm lacking in my spiritual character if not, and I should be aiming for this kind of life. This is why John the Baptist said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Because you see, the more that a glass window is noticeable, like it's foggy, it's got paint on it, the less that light actually passes through. All of us are supposed to be transparent vessels that only are able to show Jesus to others. So if we want to be prominent people, we want to be people that are successful, famous, wealthy, just watch out. Because we need to always make sure that we don't get in the way of people seeing Jesus. It's easy to do that, right? If you're somebody who's famous, people are always trying to get your attention. If you're rich, people are always trying to get your money. But if we can live our lives in such a way, those aren't necessarily bad things, but living our lives in such a way that people only see Jesus, that is to be the life and character of the Christian. Because we can mistakenly follow Jesus in a way that draws attention to ourselves rather than him. But listen, there's a blessedness. Oh, how happy are the people that allow Jesus to be the center of all creation. There is a relief from all the pressure from not having to be center stage. There is a, a fortune. There is a fortunate state in a person saying, you know what? I'm only here to point people to Jesus. So here, Jesus lays out these character ideals for all of us as citizens of his kingdom. And the first one is in verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in other words, what he's saying here is, Blessed, oh how happy, are those who see their spiritual bankruptcy. Now, it doesn't say, Blessed are the few people that are poor in spirit. Blessed are the few people that recognize that they have problems in their life and they have sin that they have to overcome. So listen, if we desire the kingdom of heaven, we must see our own incapability to make ourselves spiritually rich. All of us have to do that. To say, if it were not for the grace of God, there I would go as well, as it's famous, famously said. Now, some of you have kind of watched like those... Um, uh, crime shows, reality TV shows, and then you have those people that have done really bad things, and they're convicted for like 300 years in prison, right? We're sentencing you to 500 years in prison. And you're like, what the heck? What? Like, you don't, nobody lives that long, okay? Now imagine the guy who's sentenced to 200 years in prison bragging over the person who has 600 years in prison. So, oh, I'm not as bad as that guy because like, psh, I only got 200 years in prison. It would be ridiculous, right? Because neither of you are going to live that long. The point is, all of us are guilty. So when I recognize my own spiritual bankruptcy, here's what it does. Now I can't judge somebody else. 
I can't point the finger at somebody else that seems to, on the surface, be worse than me because I know how bad I am. It's not like God was like, I only had to try a little bit for you, but that other person, man, that was really hard saving that guy. Whew, that was a battle. Listen, for God to save any one of us sinners is a miracle. So listen, some of you, you grew up in the church, and then you have a time of sharing your testimony, and you're like, well, I don't really have a testimony because, like, I didn't really do anything bad. Or I grew up in the church. And you assume, like, that's not a big deal. Listen, the fact that any sinner can be washed free of their sin, and they are no longer a sinner, and suddenly they're a perfect creation, that is a miracle. That doesn't happen apart from God's grace. So when we recognize that and say, okay, maybe I haven't done those things that that person has done, but if it was not for God's grace, I would be right there too. If we don't start to see ourselves in that light, what we're going to do is we'll become just like the Pharisees and hypocrites. And be like, man, I am such a good person because I've never cursed before in my life. I'm such a good person because I've never drank alcohol before in my life. And you start to look at your achievements and your merits as if you're a good person, and you're not. And then how, do, how does everybody else feel when they walk into the church? Like, man, if only I didn't ruin my life because I smoked a cigarette once. If only I didn't ruin my life. Listen, I want to demean these things because sometimes people actually walk in with real baggage and real sin in their lives and real regret. But how much worse does that get when the person actually looks at them and thinks that's a big deal? If God doesn't think it's a big deal, and the Bible promises us that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who are we to come up and condemn? Think about the woman who was caught in the midst of the act of adultery. And Jesus, after he said, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Everybody else walked away. What did Jesus say? Woman, where are your accusers? Some of you need to know that some of your, when you have accusers, if you look around, the only accusers are inside. There's nobody pointing the finger. And that's what keeps people from church, is I'm afraid of what people will say, what people will think. But listen, we're not here to judge you. And even if they do, I'm not relating with that person. That's not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is like with the prodigal son, that the father ran out to welcome his son home. So if you step back here after a while, we welcome you, and we're glad that you're here, and we're not here to condemn. We're here to love you and to show you that there's a better way. You don't have to go back to that sin. You don't have to go back to the community or the things that you've done or the things that you've known, the things that are familiar. But you can step out of your comfort zone and know that there's a warm family that wants to embrace you. So this should result in compassion for the lost. When we recognize our own spiritual bankruptcy, it should result in us having compassion on the multitudes, compassion on lost people. Listen, if people start coming into church and they don't know the Lord and they live alternative lifestyles or they have different language than us or whatever, and we look at those people like, oh my goodness, that person needs a lot of work. You did too. Guess what? God had to do a lot to fix you, okay? And all of us in this, are in this process called sanctification. I look at some of the things that I did when I was 17 and I was like, what in the world was wrong with me? Right? And I grew up in the church. And I could pride myself saying, I've, and this is a real thing, I've never cursed before in my life. Other than like maybe like when I'm telling people to sit down, I slip my tongue or something, you know? Like I've never intentionally cursed in my life, okay? But 
as a teenager, that was my thing to stand on, being like, I've never cursed before. But meanwhile, I was doing all kinds of terrible things. And I look back at that, I was like, how did I not see that was a terrible thing to do? But that's because we pride ourselves in our achievements, and it blinds us to the reality that we all need Jesus. Uh, verse 4 is our second thing. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So the point here is that sin should cause sorrow. The fact that there's sin in the world, sin done to us, we should be reacting in mourning. Now, the media doesn't want you to do that. Instead, it glorifies sin. Maybe in certain forms of music, right? Cheating on relationships is actually bragged about. The fact that you have women on the side or whatever, like that's something they, they talk about and they glorify that. Like if we just had a conversation, like as friends, you're like, yeah, man, totally cheated on that person. It was awesome. We'd be like, that's, you're a terrible person, right? But you put it in a specific style, you put a good beat behind it, and suddenly now it's a hit. Movies, the same thing. Abuse in relationships, extreme forms of violence or whatever. We look at these things and we enjoy it. But we are to mourn over sin. How about dirty jokes? I mean, that's something that's really hard to actually point out when you're in a circle of friends. Someone says a dirty joke, it's like hard not to like be complacent in that. That's probably not the right word, but you know what I'm saying. To like be participating in that, even if you're silent. So what do you do when people, Christians, are telling dirty jokes, things that they shouldn't, right? You don't want to judge, but this is what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. Fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So here's, he, he's, he's saying that if you're making these jokes, listen, this is not fitting for people that are the citizens of heaven. Now, why is he so serious about this? It's like, is it that, that big of a deal? Here's why it's a big deal. Later on in verse 6, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Here's why we can't take these things lightly. It's not to point out the finger at people and be like, oh, you're telling a dirty joke, you're a terrible person. That's not the point. The point is, people will go to hell for all of eternity for the sins that we joke about. Right? So when people say like, the word hell, and they're just saying, oh, what the, you know, and H-E double hockey sticks, whatever. When people do that, like, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Like, hell? You don't think hell is a big deal? Like, that's a huge deal, right? We're not to take any of these things lightly. Once again, not to judge people and point the finger and, like, you're a terrible person if you use this language, but all of us as Christians, if we want to please the Lord, should we not take more seriously the words that we use, the jokes that we tell, the things that we take lightly. So here's a question. Are you comfortable being around acts of sin? Are you comfortable around when people participate in sin? Because 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 7 says this, God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. 
Yes, Lot lived in Sodom. Absolutely. There's no doubt that there's a righteous man named Lot who was saved out of it, but the Bible records that he was tormented day after day after day. Now, all of us as believers, we need to be in the world and not of the world, for sure. We need to be going into the culture, and we need to be reaching them for Jesus. Absolutely. But we should not be comfortable there. Huge difference. We should not be comfortable around friends that are actively participating in sinful acts. There should be something about that that grieves us, that makes us mourn, that makes us think, plan, strategize. How can we reach these people and show, show them that there's a better way? Let's go to verse 5. It says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meekness, as you've heard said before, is power under control. Power under control. That's a great definition of meekness. Now, it says that the people that have power under control are going to inherit the earth. Where does the logic kind of flow from that? How does one thing lead to the, to the other? I think it's because of this. The reason why it says that the meek will inherit the earth is because one of the fears of not using your power is that you're afraid that if you don't use your power, then the particular outcome that you desire will not ever take place. We're afraid that unless we intervene, unless we do something about it, unless we try to solve every problem, then everything's going to fail. It's the need to control. But listen, just because you're capable, just because you have sufficient ability, does not mean that you have to solve all the world's problems. Instead, we can commit our ways, our acts, our thoughts to the Lord and know that he is going to be able to solve the ultimate outcome. This is the sense of inheriting the earth. Knowing that as we commit our works to the Lord, as we say, all right, Lord, ultimately I'm doing what you're asking me to do, and I'm trusting you with the outcome, that we are going to be able to inherit the outcome that he desires, that he has sufficient control. Number four. It says, blessed are those, in verse six, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Love that. So, oh, how happy are these people that are hungry and thirsty for what? For righteousness. Now, if you have a loss of appetite or a loss of thirst, you know what that's called? It's called being sick. If we do not have an appetite for the things of God, for the person who is behind all righteousness, there's a spiritual problem. And so that's where we have to ask ourselves, if I'm not constantly, my heart is not longing for the things of the Lord, how can I stir up that appetite once again? What can I do to be able to desire the Lord more, his kingdom? What can I do to stir up my affections for Jesus? And the promise is that those who hunger and seek, hunger and thirst after righteousness, after the Lord, will actually be able to receive him. Listen, the Bible promises this. Who's making that noise? Oh, it's a phone? It sounds like someone's doing that thing with their, like, mouth. You know what I'm saying? It's the strangest thing. Sorry. Whoever's phone that is, pretend I'm not looking at you. Okay. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Isn't it an amazing thing that the Bible promises that if we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us? Man, how many relationships 
Do you wish that was the case? Like, if I just try to be this person's friend, they'll want to be my friend too. How many relationships do you just wish that if you called up a person and said, hey, you want to hang out? They actually want to hang out with you back. But the God of all creation, the God of the universe says, all you have to do is desire to draw after me, draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. You want to hang out? Sure, I got all the time in the world. You want to pray? You want to talk? Sure, I'm, I'm down. You want to do stuff? Sure, let's do stuff. God is ready. And if you have that desire for the Lord, that desire will be met. And that's why we have to seek after him. That's why we need to be in the word every day, right? Not because we have to, but because we know that he's faithful to reward. Uh, the Bible says he's, um, he who comes to God must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, right? Hebrews. So that's what we need to remember in the back of our minds every time we approach the Lord is that he will fill us. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now this one's pretty simple, right? That if we decide to actually forgive, that we actually decide to let go when people have wronged us, that we will also be recipients of this mercy as well. Now think about all the people in the Bible. Think about all the people in your life who have actually been shown mercy, right? Peter, who denied Jesus three times, and yet Jesus still told the disciples, make sure you tell Peter that I'm here, that Peter was welcomed back. Jesus had this loving conversation in John chapter, one, uh, chapter 21, saying to Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. He gave him a second chance. And all of us know that no matter how much we've sinned after our, conver after our conversion, that God is still faithful to forgive us of each and every one of our sins. Right? Isn't that amazing? That it's not even like God said, all right, you have a clean slate, just don't mess it up anymore. That he says, even if you were to sin beyond this point of forgiveness, that I've already forgiven you for every sin that you've committed in the past, present, and future. Isn't that amazing? And should we not, if God has forgiven our brother and sister in the Lord of their sin, should we not forgive them? When they've hurt us. Reconciliation is one of the hardest things to wrap your head around, isn't it? Because we want to, on paper, say that we forgive people, but have no idea what that actually looks like. This is what Peter said, right? He said, well, um, so Jesus, so if I forgive somebody seven times, is that enough? And he says 70 times seven, right? We've heard that a billion times. What Peter is saying is what all of us wanted to say to Jesus. All of us know that person that keeps on continually hurting you in your life. You forgave them three times already, and they keep doing the exact same thing. This person is unrepentant. This person refuses to change. So should I not write them off? And Jesus says, no. You forgive them every time they say sorry, every time they apologize. Why? Because that's what your heavenly Father does for you. I am so grateful that no matter how many times I've messed up doing the same stupid thing over and over and over, that God does not come at me with condemnation and say, all right, I told you like 50 times by now, and you keep doing the same thing over and over and over, and this is the last straw. Isn't it great that his mercies are new every morning? His love is boundless. 
that he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Isn't that amazing? If you have not experienced that, listen, you need to know that. You need to write that down because there will come a time and day where you'll feel condemnation. Why? Because you're a human being and you sin. If you're a child of God, you need to know that. You need to write that down. His mercies are new every single morning. It doesn't matter how many times we've messed up. That we, if we ask, if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us of not one or two of our sins, but all of our sins. If you've come here today and you've done the same stupid thing a billion times, we're here to lead you to the throne of Jesus to show you that he forgives and he loves. Okay, verse 8. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now this is Jesus, remember, confronting the religious leaders of the day as they had their ritual purification system where they washed their hands a certain way and they said, like, according to the Old Testament, if you went to the bathroom, you have to, like, bathe in a certain way and you have to wash your hands a certain way. And, like, they had all kinds of crazy laws about purification. And then the Pharisees said, well, Hold on, how do we know that there wasn't a fly that was on top of some excrement and then it flew onto your dish and then you're eating out of that dish and therefore you'd be unclean. So we need to make sure that we're washing the outside of all of our dishes and like they literally would take it this, literally, literally, they would take it so seriously, right? This is what they would do. But the Bible, here it says, Jesus says, blessed, oh how happy are the pure, not in their hands, but in their heart. They're the ones that are going to see God. You can abstain from any one particular sin and say, well, you know what? I've never looked at porn in my life. I'm a great person. Awesome. Cool. Kudos. It's the pure in heart that will see God. Not the people that are pure on the outside that seem like they have it all together. What we need is God to purify us from the inside out. And the only thing that can do that is Jesus' blood, his sacrifice on the cross. You cannot do enough good works that will undo all of your sin. We all have to come before him and have that purification. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, what it's saying here is that we are to be God's ambassadors of peace. His shalom. We should be going out and be telling people that they can have peace with God. The same message I just shared with you is not something that I'm like super creative or super smart and I said that and you're like, wow, I could never say it like that. You could literally take what I said and tell somebody else. And you know what? That's what the Bible tells you to do. All of us are to be God's ambassadors. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That we are all to be representing Jesus, telling other people to be reconciled to God. Listen, if I'm the only person doing this, I'm going to only be able to influence a very small amount of people. But listen, we got over 100 people in this room. If all of us were all spreading this message of reconciliation to our neighbors, imagine how exponentially we could be bringing peace into people's lives. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You want to be in God's family? Know his heart. Represent him. We are his children. We're carrying out the family business. This is what Jesus said, right? I must be about my father's business. We're to be going out, sharing the love of Christ, okay? Ver vertical identity will be next month. And I'd be kind of bummed out, to be honest, if there were more people that came from other churches than the friends that we invited that we know. 
right? So not legalistic. You can do whatever you want. I'm just saying what blesses my heart is when you guys get it, when you're saying, yes, I'm going to be a peacemaker. I'm going to go out and share with people that Jesus loves them, that he wants a relationship with them. If you know how to do that, great. That's a great place to start, and we can talk about that. Paul, any one of us leaders will help you with that conversation. But listen, we should be praying, praying for opportunities to make peace with others. Okay, the last one is in verse 10. It's number eight, those who are persecuted. It says, blessed are, did I say verse 10? Yeah. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So maybe what I just said makes you scared because you're like, oh, man, if I go out and tell people about Jesus, they're not going to want to be my friend or they're going to persecute me. Or well, Yeah, that's actually why he goes next into persecution. Persecution is not just for people in the Middle East. Persecution, the Bible says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a promise. People will hate you for the name of Jesus. That's why he said to his disciples, they've hated me, they're going to hate you. Whenever we're shining light, we will be the fragrance of life to those who are being saved and the fragrance of death to those who are perishing. It's also in the Bible, okay? There will be something about you that stinks. There will be some people that will not receive your message for sure. But listen, isn't it worth it to reach the one person? Isn't it reach it? Reach it? Isn't it worth it to go beyond, to reach out to the person who does not know Jesus and see them come to know the Lord? And then you're like, it only took 10 people persecuting me to reach the three people that wanted to ask to receive Jesus. I think it's worth it. But so many of us, if we're honest, we're afraid of rejection. We're so afraid of, like, I will only, this is something I do all the time. So here's the test. Ready? How many of you, if you're honest, by a show of hands, okay, how many of you would share Jesus with the next five people if it was guaranteed, guaranteed they would be saved? How many of you? Right? Like everybody. So why don't we do it? Because we're afraid they won't actually receive Jesus. But this is what faith is. Despite the outcome, I'm letting God deal with the outcome. I'm just being obedient. He's called me to, despite what I see, start planting seeds. Imagine if we all started doing that. Imagine I started doing that. And I wasn't always like cranky on the planes that I'm riding or at the gas station and be like, oh, I'm just tired. Or at the climbing gym and be like, oh, I just want my alone time. Imagine we all start being selfless. And we said, okay, despite these challenges, I'm here as a representative of Jesus, which was the hardest thing for me to do when I was in college, to be honest. Because I'm in college, I'm just getting the work done, I need to get out, out of class, I don't want to talk to anybody, I want to get home. But the amazing opportunities of the people that just want to share, uh, just want to share in this life that we have. I was uh, coming off the plane last week, I don't think you'll listen to this, so I'll just let you know. There was a guy who was, um, I guess it was past Monday, coming home. Be honest, I don't like talking to people on planes because I'm either sleeping or working or reading. It's like my three things, okay? 
But on the way back, I was sitting in the middle seat, which is the worst. Hate it so much. But as I was like hoping I'd get bumped up to first class or something, I was kind of like looking at the United app. I saw that someone got bumped up. It wasn't me, but they were in my row. So I got to move out of the middle seat into the glorious aisle seat. I was so happy. I was so thankful that I couldn't help but praise God in front of my dear brother who was sitting next to me. So I was like, ah, guess what? There will be no one in between us. And he was, yes, and we were both like rejoicing together in the Lord, although I was a Christian, he was not. So as we were just excited, he was like, hey, so where are you, where are you from? Are you living in New Jersey? And he, we started a conversation. A long story short, I got his number. We're going to go climbing next week. And it was just simple. And I was like, oh, you're reading a book. Where are you reading? And he's reading um, Unbroken, the Louis Zamperini book. And that guy became a Christian. I brought that up, you know, like super simple. I didn't even talk about Jesus that much. Gave him the Gospel of John at the end. And uh, that was it. Super simple, right? You could walk away and not really feel like I did much. But I'm here to build a relationship. That's it, right? If all I'm doing is just showing the love of Jesus, making friends, I think I'm fulfilling the Great Commission. That's what Jesus did. He went into people's houses. He told Nicodemus, hey, I need to stay at your house today. That's it. Right? He didn't say, Nicodemus, repent. He said, all right, let's get something to eat. So start building those bridges, making those friends, sharing the life of Jesus with other people, not worried about persecution because what you find is a lot of people that are especially not Christian people are actually very nice people, and they're not going to persecute you. Some of them will. Maybe most of them won't. Okay, so here's the conclusion, and we'll be done. Psalm chapter 119, verse 34 through ver verse 36 says, Give me understanding, and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all my heart. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. If you want to live the blessed life, okay? I forgot to give you the title, my bad. If you want to live the blessed life, here's how you do it. Follow the Lord. Be a follower of Jesus. Tell God today, you know what? I'm willing to surrender my life to you. Because I know that contentment will only be found in a reconciled relationship with my creator. The title of the message is Blessed Are Who, by the way. Really cheesy, but I'm still a youth pastor, so I can do that. Blessed Are Who, question mark. What I want you to do today, for those of you that are Christians, I would like for you to pray about who you can pray about to share this blessed message with. The happiness and contentment that's found in Jesus. Be praying about who is the like one person, the two people that I could be sharing this with, okay? Maybe you don't know anybody like that, and that's okay. And that's why you pray about who you can pray Pray about who you could pray to share this with eventually. If you are not a Christian here today, what I would say to you is, why wait? What are you waiting for? If you know this is true, this resonates in your heart, act upon what you know is true. We're not looking for 100% certainty here because you don't have 100% certainty on anything. Nothing. You have 100% certainty that you're going to have a test tomorrow. Well, actually not tomorrow because tomorrow's Saturday. Next week, 100% certain you're going to School's not going to get closed because it's another snowstorm. You have 100% certainty on anything. But knowing that you'll probably still have school next week, you study anyway, right? All of us can say, you know what? I'm probably, I'm not like all the way sure, but I'm pretty sure. So I'm going to act upon what I know is true. All right? So 
I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. So why don't we pray in, in closing? You can bow your heads, close your eyes. And uh, since we're one big family, I'd love to just take a moment in response worship, okay? So we don't get too many opportunities to do this. I thought this would be a great time to do it. If this message is resonating in your heart and you are a Christian here today, and you're saying, man, I don't know if I've experienced Jesus in the way that we've described I don't know if I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. With every eye closed, every head bowed. If you want to rededicate your life to Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity, opportunity to do that. What that means is you're admitting to the Lord. Once again, you're one of those people that says, Lord, I've messed up so many times, and I want to change. I want this time to be different. If that's you and you want to rededicate your life to Jesus, I'm going to pray for you, okay? I want to lead you in a prayer of that rededication. So that's the first type of person. Second type of person is the person that um, does not know Jesus at all, okay? This is your first time that you're really saying, I want to be a follower of Jesus. If that's you, I'm going to also give you an opportunity to pray a prayer with me. And this prayer isn't a prayer that, like, saves you necessarily. This is you just saying, all right, I understand that what I'm doing is not popular. But it's worth it. I want to obtain the blessed life. I want to obtain the life that Jesus promises. And so I'm going to identify with the poor in spirit, the spiritually depraved, okay? So those are the two people. And what I'm going to ask you to do is um, we're going to sing a song. After that song is done, I'm going to ask for you to actually take a stand. Not just yet, but think about it. I'm going to pray for you in front of all of your peers to be taking a stand for Jesus, and then I'll be leading you through a prayer. Not an easy thing to do by any means, because what you're thinking is, oh, people are going to think my life is messed up. Guess what? All, our li all of our lives are messed up, okay? Not a big deal. It's important for you to be vulnerable, for you to know that this is a safe place, we're not going to judge you, make fun of you. We're here to help you, but we can't help those who are not asking for help. Okay? So what we're going to do is I'm going to pray. Zach's going to lead us in a song. I'm going to come back up, and I'll give you an opportunity to take a stand for Jesus and lead you through a prayer for both groups of people, okay?